KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Another heat wave is in stock for this weekend, and a flex alert has been issued. A flex alert is a call from power grid operators for people to conserve energy during peak usage hours. Officials who operate our state's power grid aren't forecasting any rolling blackouts, but that could change at a moment's notice. Mark Rothleder with California's independent system operator says the entire West Coast is competing for energy supplies right now. He says part of the problem in California is when the sun goes down, solar power goes away, but energy use is still up. You need to have other resources that replace that energy that you are ramping out at the time. The statewide flex alert is in effect from Saturday to Monday from 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. each day. Officials say air conditioners are their biggest concern. Leaders of San Diego Unified School District joined some of the region's congressional members Thursday to urge federal approval of the HEROES Act. The stimulus bill includes funding for schools which have faced unforeseen costs because of COVID-19. San Diego Unified Superintendent Cindy Martin says reopening during the pandemic requires funds for personal protective equipment and modifications of learning spaces. And we have to modify our school buildings, including our classrooms, our gymnasiums, our auditoriums, our cafeterias, and our school buses, so that we can meet the social distancing guidelines and recommendations. Congress is at an impasse over the next stimulus package. They're scheduled to return to work next week. The community fridge that recently popped up in North Park is now gone. We reported on it earlier this week. The fridge was set up by some young people who got the support of the owner of Hangers Cleaners to put it next to his business, and he agreed to supply power to the fridge. But the owner, Gordon Shaw, now says his landlord told him the fridge had to go or he'd be evicted. We're told the young people behind the project are now looking for someplace else to host the fridge. I'm Annika Colbert. Happy Weekend Eve. It's Friday, September 4th. You're listening to San Diego News Matters from KPBS News, a daily morning news podcast powered by everyone in the KPBS newsroom. Stay with me for more of the local news you need to start your day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.
California lawmakers approved some police reform bills before the legislative session ended on Monday, but many others were left on the table. Cap Radio's Nicole Nixon looks into what happened to a few of the most high-profile bills. Senate Bill 731 would have created a process to decertify police convicted of certain crimes or charged with misconduct. Most other states have a law like that on the books. It's supposed to keep so-called bad apple cops moving from department to department. But in the chaos of the legislature's final night of the session earlier this week, it was never brought to the assembly floor for debate. Speaker Anthony Rendon told Politico that the bill didn't have the votes, but its author, Senator Stephen Bradford, says that's not completely true. We had our votes, but the speaker wouldn't know that unless he allowed us to have our day in the sun. We had identified 31 votes with 14 leaning eye. The Gardena Democrat believes the bill was a casualty of gamesmanship between the Assembly and the Senate at the end of the session. Other bills that stalled out include measures that would have opened up access to police personnel records and restrict the use of tear gas and rubber bullets during protests. Bradford says police unions opposed nearly all of those measures. Because they said, yes, we couldn't do our traditional lobbying of going in the building, but they lit phones up. They lit members' phones up. That's all I heard this past week. In an email after the session, the president of one of California's most powerful police unions said, while the group supports reforming certification laws, Bradford's bill was too far-reaching. That was Cap Radio's Nicole Nixon. A new state law and federal order will help protect tenants from eviction during the next few months of the COVID-19 pandemic. KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler tells us how these two work together and why they won't stop all evictions. Between the new legislation and the federal order, any tenant in California who can't pay rent because of the financial or health impacts of the pandemic will be protected from evictions until at least January 31st. But navigating the protections, which include paying a minimum amount and filing signed declarations with your landlord, will still be a lot of work for renters, says Greg Knoll of the Legal Aid Society of San Diego. I fear for people who are going to try this on their own and say, oh, well, I could do this. The San Diego County Sheriff's Department has carried out 66 evictions during the pandemic. 43 of those were just in the past month. Prior to the pandemic, the Sheriff's Department says it was serving over 400 evictions per month. Max Adler, KPBS News. Our partners at iNewsource are reporting that the top executive at Harris Casino in Valley Center says he was so against reopening during the pandemic that he quit. In a lawsuit filed this week against his former employer, Daryl Pellant says he felt compelled to resign when management ignored his fears that people would needlessly be exposed to COVID-19. No one for the casino would comment. So far, the county says 217 residents who got COVID-19 reported visiting a casino in days prior, though that doesn't mean they got the virus there. For more on this story, go to inewsource.org. Around 1.6 million Americans are impacted by type 1 diabetes. KPBS science and technology reporter Shalina Chetlani says Salk scientists have uncovered a novel strategy for treating patients with this disease, and so far, the results are promising. Type 1 diabetes typically occurs in adolescence, and it's a condition where the pancreas doesn't produce enough of a hormone called insulin. As a result, too much sugar ends up in the blood. Salk endocrinologist Ronald Evans says there are already a number of effective therapies for type 1 diabetes, but sometimes the body can reject them, or they have to be partnered with drugs. So he and his team came up with a new approach. 
injectable human cells that can produce insulin, and they have a type of shield so the body won't reject them. The cells begin to uh, resemble the functioning human cell, and we then have a way to turn those cells on and uh, become active. Uh, and when we do that, we find that these cells are able to actually rescue diabetes uh, in diabetic mice. Evan says the human cells were not only effective in mice, they also weren't rejected by their bodies. He says that's promising and shows the cells would likely work well in human clinical trials. Shalina Chatlani, KPBS News. For schools in southern San Diego County hit hardest by the pandemic, a public health crisis has collided with existing academic disparities. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong spoke to teachers, administrators, and medical experts about how students who most urgently need in-person learning could be the last to return to the classroom. Natalie LaRosa is a teacher at Smythe Elementary in San Ysidro. She's currently juggling raising two children while being a full-time teacher and the president of the San Ysidro School District's Teachers Union. It's, it's very stressful. Um, Distance learning has been a struggle for LaRosa. She said she's always struggled with technology and she said she spends nearly as much time preparing lessons as she does teaching. Although her life would be much easier if she and her kids could go back to the classroom, she says it's not worth the safety risk of going back to school while COVID-19 case numbers are still high in San Ysidro. Some of my students' parents have told me they've had it. Um, I know a lot of people tell me that somebody close to them died from it, even people in their 40s that were healthy, people that in their 60s. So people are starting to know more people. And it, once you know somebody, that passed away from it, then it's more real to you. As of September 2nd, the zip code where she teaches has had over 4,800 cases of COVID. That's more than 10 times the number of cases in parts of coastal North County. Other zip codes in South County also have had thousands of cases. But while a return to school would be more dangerous for families in these zip codes compared to elsewhere in the county, their children are the most likely to need in-person instruction. They're more likely to be English learners and come from low-income families. Everyone recognizes that there are certain zip codes where people reside where, where the disease is far more prevalent. Howard Terrace is a professor of pediatrics at UC San Diego and the consulting pediatrician for San Diego Unified School District. San Diego Unified, with more than 125,000 students, is the county's largest district and spans zip codes with both some of the highest and lowest case numbers. But Tara said the disparities in case numbers by zip code might not show the full picture. Um, and many of the people that live in those zip codes may go to schools outside of those zip codes. So the importance of the zip code begins to become a little bit more muddled when it comes to um, how schools need to respond. But the public health disparities colliding with pre-existing academic disparities shows an ongoing crisis, says Angelica Honko. She's an attorney focusing on educational equity at the civil rights law firm Public Advocates. Long before this pandemic, we already knew that the zip code you lived in dictated often the quality of the education that you received. Consider Scripps Elementary in the northern part of the city. It's in a zip code with among the lowest case numbers in the county and just 15% of its students qualify for free or reduced price meals. Compare that to Porter Elementary in southeast San Diego, which is in a zip code with among the highest infection rates, and 95% of its students are eligible for free or reduced price meals. Tara says there is a possible scenario where Porter has to shut down due to high case numbers while Scripps stays open. Those conversations do come up, and it is a big worry for everybody. Um, schools 
will hopefully not be the place where the disease is going to be transmitted, or it'll be hopefully a rare event where it's transmitted. Chula Vista Elementary is another district with learning disparities and a disproportionately high number of COVID cases. Educators there tried over the summer to mitigate the disparities by offering a two-week virtual summer school session to vulnerable student groups. Matthew Tessier is an assistant superintendent in the district. We were able to engage the community and actually have cohorts of children working with teachers in a virtual setting to help mitigate that loss and, and accelerate the learning, actually. Experts like Honko say that the state needs to better support districts like those in the southern parts of San Diego County to battle both the public health and educational inequities. Closing the digital divide by providing devices and Wi-Fi to all students is just one example. This pandemic gives us an opportunity to actually upgrade our educational system to meet 21st century needs. Joe Hong, KPBS News. And coming up on the podcast... And we have a new poll that shows that it's very close, almost dead even, and she actually has a a small lead, about 3%. The race for San Diego mayor is getting tighter. We have a roundtable discussion on the latest news on the race between candidates Todd Gloria and Barbara Bree. That's up next, after this break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. The race for San Diego mayor is down to two Democrats, State Assembly member Todd Gloria and City Council member Barbara Bree. There hasn't been much news lately about the race. That was until a recent poll showed Gloria was not the heavy favorite he appeared to be after the primary. David Garrick covers City Hall affairs for the San Diego Union-Tribune, and he sat down with KPBS Roundtable host Mark Sauer to talk about the latest on the race. Here's that interview. Well, your beat has been busy, despite the fact that we're in the dog days of August. Let's start with the race to replace Mayor Kevin Faulkner since the election season is upon us. Tightening up, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Todd Gloria beat Barbara Bree by 66,000 votes in the March primary and was considered, I guess, a heavy to moderate favorite. And we have a new poll that shows that it's very close, almost dead even, and she actually has a, a small lead, about 3%, which is smaller than the margin of error of 5%, but still a 3% lead. And uh, we're going to dip into that a little uh, a little bit in a minute. But both Bree and Gloria are Democrats, and they will have a Democratic majority on the city council. So where do they differ as leaders according to their campaign so far? Uh, yeah, that's interesting, because I think a couple of years ago, before they were running against each other, they were very similar on almost every issue. But since the campaign has, has begun, Bree has tended to position herself a little bit more moderately, not really conservative, but a little bit to the right of where Gloria is on certain issues uh, key ones would be uh, developing uh, dense housing projects in suburban neighborhoods. She voted against uh, extending the city's eviction protection recently. So she hasn't gone all the way to the right. She's just gone a little bit to the right of Gloria. And, and I, I don't know if that may have helped in this poll because this poll showed that she has strong support among conservative voters. So it's possible those two things are connected. Well, how do you think she may have uh, made up so much ground in this race? She barely got out of the uh, primary after all. 
Yeah, she had to wait till uh, almost St. Patrick's Day, about two weeks after the uh, election, to actually pull ahead of Republican Scott Sherman and secure that second slot in in the runoff. So it was very touch and go there. I think maybe taking those moderate positions, she's hammered Gloria on the Ash Street debacle. That's a downtown high rise the city bought that turned out to be filled with asbestos and has cost the city many millions. Gloria was on the council when the deal was approved. Of course, he points out that after he left and rejoined the council, he went to the assembly, that a lot of subsequent decisions were made. Um, And so they both have sort of their argument trying to blame each other for that situation. And a lot of undecided voters in this poll. Who's got the most money right now, or do we know that yet? I know the reporting periods take a little time. Yeah, we don't get every daily updates, but he had the biggest war chest after the primary. He knew he was going to make the runoff, so he didn't spend everything that he had. But then between February and June 30th, she outraised him two to one. So kind of maybe even things up. But there's something called independent expenditure committees in San Diego. And they basically are groups that support one candidate or the other. Gloria has a lot more money so far in that area. So I guess you'd say he has more resources, but neither of them is sort of like um, bereft of resources. They're both going to have plenty of money to spend uh, getting their word out and, and promoting themselves. Of course, the pandemic's a challenge for any candidate running for any office this year. How do you see Brian Gloria campaigning as the race heats up and we get closer to uh, November 3rd? You know, mayoral races are citywide, so typically the candidates can't go door-to-door the same way you can in a smaller city council election. But obviously, door-to-door is just not an option, um, and rallies aren't really an option. So it's definitely changing the way candidates are going to go about it. I've talked to some of the campaigns. A lot of them are not sure. They have different plans. Will there be, you know, mayoral forums with like the, on Zoom where no one's in the audience? So it's going to be an interesting campaign season, and I really don't know exactly how it's going to shake out. But certainly they'll both spend money on mailers, internet ads, and uh, in the primary, Gloria was able to afford multiple television ads. I think Bree maybe did one. I can't remember. So we'll see if maybe she does some of those as well. But Gloria, I'm sure, will do TV ads again. Well, I wanted to shift to the other big story here. The new mayor is going to take over negotiations of the big Midway District development that was announced by Mayor Kevin Faulkner this week. Who's the developer that was uh, chosen for this big project and why? Yeah, it's actually a combination of four or five different companies, but the two leading companies are Brookfield Properties, which is one of the most prolific builders of mixed-use housing in the nation, and then ASM Global, which is connected to AEG. They're like an entertainment uh, corporation. They run about three or 400 arenas and stadiums worldwide, so they're pretty prolific, including uh, LA Live, which has gotten quite a bit of acclaim, and then the O2 in London and the Mercedes-Benz Center in Berlin. So they have a strong track record in building and managing arenas and creating entertainment districts around them. And I think that's one of the key reasons that the city chose them. Certainly the city selection panel said that was one of the key reasons. And central to this winning proposal is a new arena to replace the old sports arena. It's been around for more than half a century. Tell us about it. It's not cheap, this arena. And is it going to maybe try to house a future NBA or NHL team? I might quibble with the word central, oh, not to criticize, but, but you know, basically what the city and the developers have said is that they have a collective goal of building a new arena. Initially, when this search started, the marina was kind of like, they were agnostic about it. Are we going to have a new arena? Are we going to have a remodeled arena? They weren't sure exactly how they were going to handle that. But public opinion showed that people really wanted, the local residents really wanted a new arena. And so they've shifted gears, but no one is guaranteed that there will be a new arena. They've used this very careful phrase, our collective goal. So just to be clear to, to your listeners, that it's not a done deal, there'll be a new arena. There may be one. The price that I've heard is $300 million to $600 million, where $300 million is the more realistic one for the kind of arena we have 
now that hosts lacrosse and indoor soccer and, and hockey, like minor league hockey, th- those kind of things in concerts. If we wanted to get back in the business of trying to have an NBA team or an NHL team, that would be about 600 million. It would be a much larger arena with more bells and whistles and more corporate stuff. You know, I don't know if San Diego has even inquired to the NHL or the NBA whether there's interest. So I don't know if that's even on the, the horizon, but that would be the cost if it was. And besides the arena, you've got uh, plenty of housing, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. You've got a lot of retail, all sorts of other development here. How's, how much is this all going to cost, and where's the money come from? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, but basically, some of the elements that you're talking about actually create revenue. They're gonna, the proposal now is for 2,100 housing units, high and high-rise buildings, uh, on what's now like the parking lot of the sports arena. And, and basically, those the revenue from those will be used to pay for an arena, for public amenities, for parks, for, you know, uh, stuff to connect the San Diego River. And they have a lot of cool elements and amenities that they're planning. And those will continue to be adjusted and shaped over over time as the city works out a deal with the developer. And the question is, is there taxpayer subsidies? And the answer officially is no. But it's important to note that the city is basically going to give a sweetheart lease to these companies, you know, to develop 48 acres that is owned by taxpayers. So that's not an official financial subsidy where taxpayers are paying money, but you know they could sell that that uh, you know to the highest bidder and use that money to pay for something else. So subsidy is a questionable word to use. Yeah, the devil will be in the details, and that's all going to be worked out. Now, a big housing part of this, and uh, that all depends on a vote San Diegans are going to take in uh, the November third election, right? We got to we got to change the uh, the zoning rules there. The height. Yes, rules. Measure E. It's a it's a proposal to lift the city's coastal thirty foot height limit, which dates back to the early seventies, the previous ballot measure, and basically it would lift that thirty foot height limit in just a very small targeted area. I think it's about eight hundred acres surrounding the sports arena. Proponents say, hey, you know, th- this is not a coastal area. We're not blocking views here. Even though the sports arena is in the coastal zone, no one thinks that the sports arena is on the coast. So they have a strong argument. On the other hand, some folks feel like it's a slippery slope. And if you lift the height limit there, there's going to be a push to lift it elsewhere along the coast. And then we'll look like, you know, Miami Beach instead of the California look where the coast is more shorter buildings. So that's concerned. And our poll showed that that has a slight lead measure E, but there's like 40% undecided. So a lot of people aren't even aware of it yet. So it'll be interesting to see between now and the election where the support or opposition to that goes. Boy, sure will, because it'll really change that development if it can't pencil it out and go higher with those uh, revenue-making residential units. Yeah, if you have to build buildings of less than 30 feet in height, you just can't build enough units to pay for a new arena, I don't think. I mean, I'm not a developer, but it seems like it will be quite a challenge. Right. Boy, lots uh, of this going forward. It's going to take uh, some time. Any timetable at all on this uh, development finally? Supposedly, the agreement between the city and the developer will be complete early next year. So we'll have a new mayor and a new council in place. They predicted first quarter of 2021. Being a reporter and seeing all these things, whenever they predict that, I'll just say second quarter because typically nothing finishes on time. But it looks like sometime in the first half of next year, we'll have a deal before the city council. If they prove that, then I guess construction could begin relatively quickly. But I've heard eight to 10 years to build the whole enchilada, to build the arena, build all the housing, get everything in place. Now, maybe that's a a pessimistic view. Maybe it could be four years. But it's not like we're going to have a new arena in 2022 or something. That seems unlikely to me. That was David Garrick of the San Diego Union-Tribune speaking with KPBS Roundtable host Mark Sauer. To hear the full roundtable, you can catch it today at noon 30 on KPBS Radio or listen to the KPBS Roundtable podcast. That's it for San Diego News Matters today. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.